The Late Morning Program with Nam Ras Podcast. Hi, Krishna, everyone. You are listening to the Late Morning Program with your host, Namras, uh, the number one Hare Krishna podcast in the world. I still don't know if it's the number one. I just say that. Uh, I'm here <laughs> I'm here with Danya Rico. Danya, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. How exciting. What an awesome intro. I think it's different than what it used to be, right? Yes, it, it used to be a little... It, it, was, it was different. Now I got... Now I... Um, one devotee from England who's like into video editing and things, I got him to put a montage together and he put some cool music to it. And I think... It's I was like going to ask who picked the Aliyah song if it was Yeah. New. Oh, you knew it was Aliyah? Oh, that's cool. Come okay, on. Like, what is that from? But yeah, it's an Aliyah song. He picked it out. I was like, just do something like hip. I'm not into like what's the... Hip. I guess what Ali are the is kind cool of kids old. doing? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so Danya, thank you for joining me, and and we're going to talk about. So the title of this was "Healthy Relationships Equals Healthy Spiritual Life." So before we go into our topic, let's talk a little bit about your story. Tell us a little bit about kind of like how you grew up and how you got interested ultimately in what you do now, which is family and relationship counseling and uh, therapy. I think that's a super interesting uh, topic and and also like how you really got into that because it's kind of a very, um, it's like a, it's kind of very specialized. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I, I grew up in Caracas, Venezuela, and um, we lived between Venezuela and the U.S. And I was, I was, I would say I wasn't even a, an especially good student. I was always, I really liked studying right? and I really liked school. Um, but I wasn't like some crazy stellar good student until I got to college and then I could pick my own classes. And then I think because I got to get into topics that were more interesting to me, I kind of applied myself more. Right. So, um, I originally, I, I, I was really into theater. I went to like an arts high school for part of my high school. Um, but then I just got into psychology. I was just taking those classes to kind of fill out the rest of my degree and then it just ended up interesting me so much um so i started my degree my undergrad in clinical psychology in venezuela and then because of the political and social situation there uh it was crazy like my my school was risking being shut down because it was a private institution and the government wanted to make all private institutions public and, and there was all kinds of protests so my school got really disrupted. We couldn't go to school. They would like block us into the school. I mean, it was it was wow. like super chaotic. Like they would like tear gas us in our classrooms and stuff. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was bananas. I was telling my, I don't know who I was telling the other day. Maybe my mom. I was like, it's crazy. I used to go to school with like a little bottle of vinegar and a handkerchief in case there was tear gas that day. I would just like breathe into the vinegar soaked handkerchief. I'm like, who does oh my that? Gosh. Wow. <laughs> it wow. was wild. So anyways, long story short. Um, yeah, I ended up not being able to complete my degree. And at the same time that all that kind of disruptive stuff was going on, my brother, my younger brother, Omi, graduated high school and we wanted to go to India together to do Bhakti Shastri. So I took that as kind of a break, like a gap in the middle of my degree. And we went to Mayapur. We lived in Mayapur. We did Bhakti Shastri together. Um, and then when I came back, the situation was so intense. It was just like unlivable at that point. 
So we came to the U.S., my mom, my brother, sister, and I. And uh, around that same time is when Bali, my husband, and I started kind of getting to know each other better. And I ended up moving to Alatra to complete my undergrad degree. So I ended up completing a degree in criminology, which is pre-law, just cool. And I, I thought about doing law for a second, um, but then I realized it would kind of bring things up in my nature that I didn't necessarily want to be doing, like, full-time, like, being argumentative and <laughs> being oh, adversarial. Wow, you you yeah. you thought that about yourself, and you were like, "Oh, I don't want to." That you have to be like no, just, really self-aware to to know that. I mean, I think it was just you know, there's there's a certain level input and output that you get from every job. I think, and the, and the level of input that it takes to be a, a a lawyer, and especially a good lawyer, it's so much work and so many years of studying. And then I thought, okay, well, what's the mood of my job going to be? What kind of qualities in me is it going to bring out? Because I was that was a big concern. I knew I was going to. And knowing myself, I was going to really put myself into anything I was going to do. I wasn't just going to do it halfway. And so, yeah, I just thought like, wow, I'm just going to be basically like arguing for a living and it's going to be adversarial and I'm going to be dealing with, you know, it's not like everybody that you deal with is going to be innocent if you're like in a criminal situation. So anyways, it was just too much of things that I wasn't looking to do. And so then I uh, kind of after contemplating a little bit, I was like, okay, I think I want to go into counseling. I want to understand the mind. I want to understand behavior. But more than that, I want to understand relationships. So I did, again, just like kind of bare, bare minimum <laughs> research. And I was like, well, I know I don't want to move from Alatra. So what's a good program at UF? And uh, Bhakti Cohen, um, who's a very well-established counselor and mediator here, um, she got her master's degree in what I now have my master's degree in, which is oh. counselor education. So it's actually, a, it's a degree in counseling, but from the school, the College of Education, which is different than the College of Psychology. So the background is more in teaching, right? Teaching skills, letting people learn them, practice them, and then they kind of go forward from there, rather than a more kind of clinical, research-oriented kind of thing, which is uh, sometimes what the school of psychology looks like. And then I specialized in couples and family therapy, which they let you kind of specialize in, in certain areas if you like school counseling or, or that kind of thing. So yeah, that's, that's how I got into that. So you teach counseling. I can teach counseling and I teach counseling skills. I te teach communication skills. So there's a big like didactic component. It's not like that kind of old school counseling, like Freudian style, like you see in the movies where someone's just sitting on a long couch and they're just like right, right. <laughs> reassociating about like, oh, and then in my childhood, you know, yeah. it's a little it's a little bit more dynamic than that, I think. And it uh, allows room also for like co-construction of you know, concepts and ideas and tools between myself and whoever I'm working with, whether it's an individual or couples. So it, I find it a little bit more uh, dynamic. Mm. That's really interesting. I, I, I really, I, I, I just got into kind of understanding about, you know, what counselors do. And, you know, we had Rambaru uh, uh, Mataji on and she, she's a, she's a, a chaplain. It's kind of similar, I would say totally. to to counseling. So she's t told us kind of like her story and, and about, mm. you know, what she does and things. I, I find it really fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about um, kind of the topic at hand here. So what I know I asked you kind of what was some, some things that we'd like to talk about. And you gave this phrase that, that I really liked. And I want you kind of unpack it a little bit more. Healthy relationships equals a healthy spiritual life. So in relation to Krishna consciousness, Tell us a little bit about what, how that came about and, and, and kind of unpacking that. 
Yeah. So I think, you know, I think that this is something that deep down we call, we all understand because bhakti yeah. is a yoga of relationships. Like even when you think about what's my relationship going to be like with Krishna or with Radharani or with Lord Chaitanya, it's always going to have a certain flavor. And that kind of flavor is going to indicate what kind of exchanges you have. And there's behaviors that go with that. So <clears throat> I think intuitively we know that bhakti is about relationships. But beyond that, I was just you know, during the time when I was doing Bhakti Shastri, I was also reading books like What is the Difficulty by Shruti Kirti Prabhu. I love that and book. Such such a, I mean, book. you could literally open it on any page and it's like an incredible story. Yeah, awesome. So I was reading that. Um, and and so, so many of these kinds of stories of personal relationships and personal interactions with Srila Prabhupada yeah. and realizing like he was a man of relationships. Like, these people, I mean, I try to imagine what it was like at the beginning of the movement. Like there weren't books readily available, certainly not the level that we have now. Right. There wasn't established institutional anything like that. People literally committed their lives based solely on their relationship with Prabhupada. And sometimes that relationship took place over like a few hours. Like, of course, that's an indicator of like Prabhupada's incredible Shakti and his purity. But it just goes to show like, wow, a relationship, a personal relationship with somebody can be the only thing that you need to say, you know what? Yes, I want to give my life to Krishna. Why? Because this relationship is giving me what I need, that real spiritual nourishment, that real purpose in life. And so I realized like, wow, that's that's possible and that's necessary. Right. And so, you know, even Prabhupada mm -hmm. in like the Nectar of Instruction, he talks about specifically in the verse about the six loving exchanges, he says that ISKCON is actually set up to facilitate these loving exchanges. Right. And I was thinking, wow, what a magical way of putting it. Like I've created this institution so you guys can relate to one another. And he knew, I mean, it's called ISKCON, it's an international society, that people would be coming from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of cultures, all kinds of, you know, upbringings, whatever, and they would have to interact with one another kind of on this basis. So it just started kind of, dawning on me, I guess, that, you know, a healthy spiritual life, a symptom of healthy spiritual life is healthy spiritual relationships. And, and you know, I think that this could look very different and will have a different flavor than spirit, uh, material relationships, which is it's important to make that distinction. It's not like if I have bomb, you know, material relationships and that means I'm a pure devotee. That's not what that means. But you know, yeah, our society is going to thrive if our relationships are healthy and it should be an indicator of our spiritual welfare, especially the qualities that develop in an advancing spiritualist, you only really see them in a relationship. How do you know that someone's humble based on how they relate with somebody else? How do you know that someone is kind? Who are they kind to? How do you know that someone speaks sweetly? Who do they speak to? You know, so all of these things are going to show up in a relationship unless those relationships are kind of highlighting those qualities. It's actually really hard to know for even advancing. It's that mirror that gets held up to us. So that was, that was kind of what I was thinking when we were discussing how to kind of unpack the topic. Right. You, you spoke about humility, about being humble. Do you think, you know, do you think it's always healthy to always take, sorry, do you think it's healthy to always take a humble position in a relationship? Because we are taught that, you know, uh, What's the verse I can't remember? Turn out a bisunichena, you know, always being humble. But but is it always healthy to do that, you know, for one's self-esteem and things like that? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, yeah. my guru Maharaj, uh, His Holiness Jai Swami, says that you can uh, summarize the entire self-help section of bookstores with the Trinata right. Bisunichena right. verse. 
because I mean, that's really, that's how you help yourself, like capital S self. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, yes, it's always beneficial to us to take the humble position, but humility doesn't necessarily mean, and it shouldn't mean self-deprecation or victimization or allowing yourself to kind of be a doormat. I think we equate that because how we've grown up in like modern Western consumerist capitalist society, humility does equal that. It's like pathetic. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's pathetic. It's something to be looked down on. It's like something that you pity and you I would never, even the concept of servant, right. I'm somebody's servant. Like, yeah. like it's you're so, <laughs> <laughs> and then you're serving a servant. Like that's even worse. And so right. for us, that's going like higher and higher up the chain to be the servant of the servant. So some of that is like um, programming from just our material upbringing yeah. So I think from a spiritual perspective, to really understand humility, then yeah, absolutely. It's always going to be, uh, yeah, in the service of our spiritual life. Is it easy? No. Are people going to take advantage of that? For sure. Because that's the nature of the material world and the exchanges of of conditioned beings, you know? So it's not going to be easy, but I do think it's ultimately beneficial. Right now, you know, the way COVID has been and also just 20, you know, just this 2021 it seems like relationships are very much based online, how you interact with devotees and things like that. And I, and I see lots of interesting, you know, uh, interactions in the, and it's not very Vaishnav like when kind of we interact with each other online. And I, and I think that how does that happen when we're supposed to act a certain way, we're supposed to act humble and tolerant and, but we, we kind of, are, we know so much about other people's lives, sometimes even too much that it, it, it like maybe bothers us or something they we don't agree on or something. So how would we, how do you think we should kind of navigate that online relationship? You know, we do that so much these days. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely layers to that. And I like that you were like, it's interesting how they... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do it myself too. Like, I know so much about someone. And I'm like, oh, I'm not sure if I like that, but I'm not going to. You know, I, I'm I'm someone who's like, I, I will, I won't go back and forth with you on on Facebook unless I'm like, I don't know. It's just it's just like distasteful to me because like, or I'll go on on private message and we'll talk about it. But like over like where everyone can see everything and like it's kind of like too much for me. Yeah, I think it's strange. I think that we've kind of bought into that um, we have to respond on this online platform that we owe it to one another or that that is a modicum of transparency or that that is the appropriate medium for certain conversations. And I'm pretty sure that Facebook sold us that idea. And I'm pretty (laughs) sure that Twitter sold us that idea. Like we are literally just consuming somebody's product. It's like saying, I can't have this conversation unless I have it in a Walmart parking lot because Walmart told me, it's like, why are you- Wow. Right. Yeah. So I feel like it's um you basically you bought the product, yeah. right? You think you're using Facebook for free, but Facebook is using you for free, bro. Like yeah. you are the product. You just That's- got consumed by Facebook. And literally it's a consumptive process. Like it consumes people. One of the most surprising things is, you know, seeing these arguments take place online and stuff like that. I'm like, you have to be on there for a while to like formulate these like long paragraphs and like read other people's responses and respond to everybody else. I'm like, that is, it's time consuming. And that's a little scary because devotees are constantly talking about how I don't have time to chant my rounds and I don't have enough time to read. And I'm like, it's amazing because there's so much time for Facebook. So 
Anyways, it's just, it kind of, it, it opens my mind to the dangers of the medium and mm. how even though we're Vaishnavas, yeah. we're still so susceptible to the marketing of some of these um, businesses and enterprises and how we think that we're using it, but it's actually using us. Every time that you see a comment that, you know, pushes your buttons or whatever, there's an algorithm behind that. And so how how susceptible are you? How much of yourself are you lending to that? And so yeah. that's that's the kind of like zoom out version that I'm like, oh my God, this thing is like really taking over this business or whatever. And then the other aspect of it is, yeah, so anytime that we interact with one another, especially in public spaces, do we feel like we're, first of all, representing ourselves nicely that would be a nice reality check. And then also, if we're throwing around words like Srila Prabhupada said this, Iskhan, blah, 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 Vaishnavism, this, Bhakti, that, that, like, are we representing that with our tone? Are we representing that with our manners? Are we representing that with our, you know, there's always the issue of like, well, what's the pramana for that? And what's, it's like, okay, the pramana should definitely be there. What is the vibe here, right? Like, so... <laughs> I'm sure that, you know, when we feel passionate about things, we all want to be like Bhakti Siddhanta Maharaj, like lion-like in our, yeah. but um, I, I personally don't have that purity. <laughs> so I can't, I can't have that mood. Right. So yeah. yeah, definitely. It's, it's a bit of a shocker and it's actually really distasteful. It's super disappointing. And, and it's um, for me, it's been on a personal note, like actually heartbreaking. Like I have a really hard time digesting some of what I read and and the tone in which it's delivered because I think about what it's like to see devotees from the outside and how damaging this could be. How damaging mean, it could be. What do you mean seeing devotees from the outside? So, you know, I have people on my Facebook who are not devotees, but who are oh, curious, right. you know, people that we've met at yoga studios doing kirtan or people who are curious about philosophy or people that I went to school with or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And because I might be commenting or liking pictures and whatever, then sometimes, you know, you can see other people's posts and I think, if one of my colleagues saw how we're speaking to one another, yeah. I would be horrified because then naturally they'd be like, these devotees or these Hare Krishnas, like they're horrible to one another. I don't want to be a part of that. So, you know, I've mentioned to Bali before, sometimes I feel like for all the efforts that we do to preach and distribute books and do Harinam, like one second on Facebook reading one devotee thread could literally destroy somebody's interest in Krishna consciousness. I believe that that's true. It's shaking my <laughs> it's shaking my interest in, in 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 interacting on this platform with devotees, which is um, you know, it's sad. So yeah, the way that I manage it honestly is I you know Facebook you can like pin certain things to the top of your feed. Yeah. So that every time you log on to Facebook, you only see like these first things. So I have like Bhakti Tirta Swami quotes, Iskhan Vaishnavi Ministry, right. da, 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 Radha Swami quotes. So right. that when I log on, I'm just like, Krishna, please like flood my eyes with some transcendental. Like I am uninterested virtually in reading anything except for devotees speaking directly about Krishna, directly about Prabhupada. But like that inner conversation thing, it's like really heartbreaking. It's like super disturbing to me. Right. That's a great point. I love that. Yeah. I'm guilty. I'm fully guilty of. of uh, <laughs> I am too. We're all, yeah. On Facebook, but I, I, I think as I get older and and more busy, I, I that helps out. But um, you know, when when we talk about relationships, I think a lot of people have interest in kind of uh, marriage and husband wife kind of relationships, things like that. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about kind of how you met 
your husband, uh, Bali. He's a wonderful person. And, and just like kind of that story. And also, uh, I can ask a few things around that because, and also whoever's listening, if you have any questions, just put it in the comment box and maybe we can uh, entertain some of those as well. Yeah. So Bali and I, it's interesting. Our, our story actually goes way back. My dad um, was one of the early preachers in Colombia. So he helped establish the first temple there. Oh, and my. at that time, Bali's dad was a young teenager, but his older brothers were older. And so they got into it. And actually the first um, deities in Colombia were at um, Bali's grandfather's house. And so my dad actually preached to Bali's uncles. <laughs> Amazing. So wild. Yeah. So then they ended up, you know, keeping in touch. And then of course, you know, Bali's um, mom and dad, they, they moved to Nutalovan eventually. And then that's where my dad's first wife and my older brother and sister lived. And so, you know, Juggy, my older brother, um, right. he and Bali grew up together. And so, yeah, I just knew Bali through connection with him. Obviously, I didn't live here. I didn't live in the States. So we just kind of knew each other peripherally. And I'd, you know, come for Rathiatras or 24-hour Kirtans and stuff like that. And we'd meet and be friends and stuff. And Juggy was really the person that um, kind of enveloped me into the the Kirtan crew. Like he encouraged me to come around and I was very shy and I wasn't from here, but he was so welcoming. And and so I just started kind of integrating more and more into the Kirtan scene. And that's what Jaggi and Bali and Kish and all these guys were doing. So yeah, slowly, slowly, we just became friends and kept in touch over the years. And then um, we spent some time together because when I was in India doing Bhakti Shastri, he also came for a period of time. Then I left, he stayed like, we kind of continued keeping in touch. And then that summer, which is the summer of 2009, is when we actually got together. So yeah, it was kind of like a family thing. There's actually a kind of dorky story, but like one summer, yeah. it's probably like the summer of like 2006 or seven, like we were way young. My dad and me and like my uh, Juggy and Shraddha, my, my older siblings, we were like sitting around a table and my dad's known Bali his whole life. And he was like, you know who Danya would be like a good match with? Bali. And we were all like, ha, 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 ha. that's silly. And then like, yeah, like five years later, we were married. <laughs> wow. When the Vaishnava speaks, it's, it, it's powerful. <laughs> there it it's, is. It's yeah. very powerful. Very cool. Um, so I, um, I wanted to ask something kind of like personally regarding kind of uh, marriage and things like that. Um, for for me and Tulsi have been married for like eight years now. And I feel like just now I'm starting to understand like how, how she works. And, and, and if I had known some things that I, that I, you know, years back, then I would have had an easier time because she was my first relationship and, you know, just, we've got married. And um, so maybe the question is like, as a man, how can we, how can someone prepare for being in a relationship? Uh, with a woman, we're just talking uh, man, woman at the moment. Uh, learning how to understand a woman is, 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 is without going through the experience of it the way I did. I feel like I could have done a lot better years ago. So what do you think for our listeners, how can they prepare to be in a relationship? Yeah, specifically. I mean, I think it's, it's so cool. And I, I would agree. Like Bali and I are, are we were 12 years together now and 10 years married this year. Oh, wow. And I agree. There's stuff where you're just like, oh, my God, duh, about this person that I know yes. now that like yes. in year two, I was like, it's an enigma, right? Like it's totally yes. mysterious. So I think that that's brilliant. And I think that that's natural, too. I think that there are some things 
that only come with time, certain lessons, certain uh, intimacy, emotional intimacy and understanding of one another, certain vulnerability that you're able to unlock with commitment. And that's why uh, like relationship hopping is so unhealthy because there are levels to relationships that you will not be able to unlock until you reach certain milestones. And the people who are together for 25 years will tell you what their milestones are in 50 years and that kind of thing. You just won't get there, right? Just like there's foods that like they have to be aged and until they age a certain way, you don't get a certain flavor. It's like, yeah, it's the same. So, um, you know, as far as, you know, you specifically asked for men, you know, how do you uh, put together the puzzle of the woman's psyche? Um, really, it's having healthy relationships with women who can... Right spell it out for you you know <laughs> i don't know if you've seen that meme where it's like a man asking a woman like oh it's so women are so hard to understand they're just so enigmatic and the woman's like well i could actually just tell you it's like a, a mystery a total mystery <laughs> like <laughs> right right so i mean the the people who i see that have these really healthy relationships with women and are able to kind of grow and, and foster nourishing balanced spiritual relationships with women are people who grew up with nourished balanced spiritual relationships with their mothers with their sisters with their cousins with right. friends and peers that were women so it's having you know first and foremost a respectful and spiritual foundation underneath these relationships but also being honest and being candid and and learning you know having the example of older couples where you see like oh this is how they interact this is how they treat one another this is how you're learning from maybe the the gender that you identify with which is okay i'm learning from the man how he does the man stuff but also i'm learning from him how he interacts with his partner and how she interacts with him and what of that vibes with how i want to do so it's really about immersing yourself and i think that's a big component of the grihasta ashram that we can lean into which is healthy relationships breed other healthy relationships relationships that thrive usually don't do so in a vacuum they usually do it amongst other really healthy balanced couples so i think if you have a question about women finding women that you can trust mentors maybe women that are a little bit older than you that see you as you know in that kind of figure of like this is my son or this is my cousin this is my brother who you can share some of that insight with and and i've been lucky enough to have men in my life who there's enough of a trusting and loving relationship there where we can talk openly about that. And, and it's benefited me because then I, I'm able to understand Bali better. And it's also, I, I think, I hope have ben benefited them because I'm able to speak sincerely about what, what works and doesn't work for me as a woman. That's really important. And I, and I agree with you that, you know, if you have a good relationship with your sister, your mother, you kind of, kind of understand that. I think personally, I, you know, I had a great relationship with my sister and my mother for sure, but there were still things that I didn't understand. And also I, I didn't have any many women that were my friends, like, mm. you know, coming from the Indian background, it was like, a, it was like, even though my parents never like, they were very kind of open-minded and things like that, but I never, I don't know, it was like a growing up a devotee thing. Like it's like men and women they cannot be friends like when they're younger because there's that, you know, you know, there's the disastrically thing that, uh, you know, woman is like uh, fire, man is like butter and things like that. So I think uh, maybe is it, is it, you feel it's like a disservice in some ways where, where kind of young people can't, or they feel embarrassed to, to interact so much. And if they do interact, it's kind of in private, their parents don't know kind of thing. So 
I feel that I missed out on that a little bit and I had to learn it by experience. Like you said, you know, unlocking those things myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, and there's that experience, which I think many people have had. And I think certainly, you know, people our age or perhaps a little bit older had that experience of just like, don't, you know, unless you want to get engaged tomorrow, like do not speak to this person of opposite sex. Um, But then you see people who had experiences like bus tour or, you know, that kind of thing where the center is Krishna and the center is service and the center is pilgrimage to all these different temples and Rathiatras and stuff like that. And then you learn how to relate to the opposite sex, not as the opposite sex, but as another servant of Krishna on the bus tour with you as somebody else who loves Kirtan as somebody else who loves, you know, whatever it is. So I think that, you know, that that's why it's important to build those institutions in our society because Boys and girls are going to want to hang out. I mean, Prabhupada literally says that it's like magnetic. They just want to. And even if you don't, you're thinking about it all the time. And right. So that desire is there. So can you facilitate it at its highest vibration? Can you facilitate it in the mode of goodness? Can you facilitate it? You know, and this doesn't mean unsupervised. This doesn't mean without some like purpose or motive or mission behind it, like bus tour, like, you know, all of these things. Um, Can it be organized? Can I organize things? You know, here they have like soccer matches where young boys and girls are on the same team and they play soccer together and they learn teamwork and they learn cooperation and they learn to respect authority and they help each other. And, and it's like, they're not tripping about that's a boy, I'm a girl, you know, it's just like, and they're supervised and all the parents come. So there's ways of doing it for sure. And you never want to be so naive as to think that that butter and fire thing doesn't exist and that people don't look at each other like their bodies because we do look at each other like we're bodies. You know what I mean? Right. Um so it's, it's, it's having that at the forefront of your mind of like, yes. And at the same time, like as kids get older, you'll be able to control them less and less. So are you helping them to have healthy interactions with the opposite sex or are you scaring them? Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. What do you think the best way to meet someone in 2021 as a devotee is meaning like, to get to know them well enough before marriage while respecting our principles and things like that. Basically. What's like the association model for 2021? I don't know. I don't know that. Um, I don't know. I think, I think one of the ways that I've seen person, cause a lot of the people that I work with actually, especially in the past, maybe like two or three years, are second and third generation couples who want to do premarital counseling, which is like such an interesting demographic to work with. They're amazing. And it's not always a couple. Sometimes it's young men or young women who are thinking like, okay, I am going to want to get with somebody. I'm open to getting with somebody, but I want to work on myself. So when I get there, I'm kind of free of some of this baggage or I know how to interact or communicate properly, et cetera. So that's been super fascinating. And my experience has been that the couples who do really well, um, they're either friends already, like they kind of grew up in the same friend group, or they're part of like an extended friends group in the sense of like, oh, they do kirtan in this community. I do kirtan in this community. And we ended up kind of linking up at festivals or they did the DD worship course this year. And then I did the DD worship course another year. But then, you know, we were into that same thing. So a lot of it is people who share friends, which I, I feel like in second and third generation, a lot of people have common friends totally. um, and, and mutual interests. So what kind of service do you want to do? What is your uh, inclination, especially in the movement service wise? Those seem to be couples that kind of gravitate 
And from what I hear of their like origin stories, like how they got together mm. is that um, they were like recommended by a friend. Like, oh, you know, I know this amazing girl, like right. she's super sweet, blah, blah, blah. And you're such a great guy. Like maybe we can all hang out together or maybe, you know, when we go to such and such place, you guys can like chat. So it's, it's really organic. I feel like it's based on like interest and chemistry and, and mutual friends. And I know that's not accessible to to everybody. That's not going to be available to everybody. But it's it's where I see a lot of like thriving relationships start. Definitely. Yeah, I. I yeah, it's and then. And then again, that online component is there, but you know that's not really. I, I think I think that yeah, it's it's really important if 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 people recommend friends. You know, me and Tulsi have kind of gotten into this, like matchmaking thing a little bit. Mm-hmm. We have like maybe five matches that we made. They've I think two three have got married, two of them are on the way or something like I don't know. I don't remember, but it, it, it's 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 a lot like what you said. It's about recommendation. Like you know someone, so. Yeah. This was person's really nice, and and you know that person's really nice too. So and you're really nice too. Let let you know. Let's all hang out and stuff. That's it's important. And and yeah, people don't. Some people don't have that, and it's difficult. You know, I have a lot of friends who are, were were struggling in that way. You know, to find someone, and then to find someone. You know, that's just the first part. You know, there's so many more layers to it. You know, how do you get along? And you have the same values. Even as devotees, sometimes we don't have the same values and and things like that. Do you do you only? I mean, do you do any um, counseling to devotees directly? Like, so uh, I guess the question is: Is it mostly devotees, or is it mostly normal people, or like, <laughs> normal people? It's normal only people. abnormal. Yeah, people. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a good mix, and it's also different seasons, right? So sometimes my clientele will be like seventy thirty devotee practitioners to non-practitioners. Sometimes it'll be 50-50. Sometimes I'll just have like one devotee client and everybody else is people from outside communities. So it really changes from time to time. But I think that um, same thing because of word of mouth, people will have, you know, couple sessions or individual development sessions and they'll go, you know, like this really worked for me. And then they recommend it to a friend. And then that friend, when it's time for them to get engaged, they want premarital counseling or they're working on such and such issue that came up from their childhood or that, you know, they're having a hard time figuring out like a work-life balance as a devotee, et cetera, et cetera. So I do find that, yeah, it's, there's kind of like waves of when people are into it, but more and more it's happening. And I think that's awesome because it's breaking free this taboo of like, I don't need counseling, or if I just chant X number of rounds and this problem will go away or, you know, whatever it is. um, It's a nice support. And I feel like people are reaching for it. So I, I think it's working for some people. Yeah. We have a very traditional kind of view as devotees. I mean, there is a traditional view of marriage. And do you think that still works? Is there space for like that kind of um, traditional view uh, in our society? And, and, and having also the modern roles, you know, the traditional versus the modern. Like, what are your views on that? Roles you mean between partners, like man yeah. and woman and what they do? I think there has to be. I think that in any balanced society, there has to be traditional, conservative, old school ways of doing and thinking. And there has to be more modern, adaptive, contextual, fluid ways of doing and thinking because, because it's people's nature. It's just people's nature. Even outside the movement, some people are gonna be more conservative. Some people are gonna be more whatever. 
it has to be value driven. That's how you're going to know, you know, is this Krishna conscious or not? My behavior, my values, the way that I relate to people is going to be a testament to that. And so that's that's ultimately what's important. That's where we have to come together. But I think that it's natural. It's not should or shouldn't there be. It's that it's just going to happen. It's going to happen naturally that people are going to gravitate towards the polls. And they're not necessarily going to be the majority. I think that one of the uh, another thing that we buy into a lot, and this is devotees being influenced by media, mainstream and non-mainstream media, is this idea that things are polarized and everybody's at this end and that end. And it's like, statistically speaking, I mean, in terms of like, actually when you study how people think and how people feel, most people fall in the middle. Most people are mm. moderates. Most people take a little bit of conservative this and that, a little bit of liberal this and oh, that. Wow. It also changes over the lifespan, right? When you're younger, you tend to be more liberal. And when you're older, you <laughs> tend to be more conservative. <laughs> so then this idea of like, we're split and there's going to be these people. And this, it's like, that doesn't even work that way. First of all, it's fluid. It's in motion. And second of all, where did you get that information? Because you know a bunch of conservatives that are radical and you know a bunch of liberals that are radical. So you've put together this study. It's like, that's, that's not how people work. And it just takes like right. a quick Google search on sociology to see that actually most people are fall somewhere in the middle and they take from both sides. So I think that that, um, those poles, if you see like a bell curve, this tail is going to be small and very noisy. And this tail is going to be small and very noisy, but most people are in the middle. And that's why I think it makes us so uncomfortable to, to see things so polarized. Wow. That's, I didn't know that. That's awesome. I mean, because <laughs> <laughs> I, I did see it like, you know, very black and white. I mean, I know there's gray, but I didn't know the majority is there. Well, I mean, who stands to benefit who stands to benefit from people thinking, you know, it's half and half and those people are extremists and I'm extremists. Who stands to benefit? A platform like Facebook stands to benefit or people who have an agenda stand to benefit or, you know, some whenever something is polarized like that, there tends to be a power thing involved. There tends to be a money thing involved. It's very um, sort of blah and boring to think that, yeah, most people are probably moderate and they have a few conservative views and a few liberal views and, you know, and, and they're willing to be perhaps even convinced with new information. Like that's so not exciting. That's so non-sensational that it, how is that going to make a headline? Right. How is that? What article is going to be written on that? That's going to come across my algorithm for me to read. They're just going to be like conservatism is on the rise or liberalism is on the rise. This is all like, you know what I mean? So yeah, that's why you got to, yeah, to keep it balanced, it's nice to look at it that way and say like, oh, okay, so. Yeah, going back to uh, relationships uh, personally, um, I had kind of a, a, a view of what the roles would be, you know, like, oh, she'll do this and I do this. And, and there's this kind of like fantasy sort of. So how do you, how did I had to come to it like just by going through it, but how do we get uh, like a more realistic view of relationships and roles in, in when we're talking about marriage? Yeah, I think, well, that's when something like premarital counseling could really come in handy because you overtly talk about that before right. you live together and before right. you get together, right? So like how revolutionary would it have been, you know, for you and Tulsi to have sat down if you didn't, um, to have sat down like really early on in your relationship and been like, you know, so like hours on the clock, like how many hours do you want to actually like spend like just playing with our kids? Right. Oh, right. Wow. And then and how many hours in a week do you envision going to work? But like 50 weeks of the year, 
And um, what kind of day do you want to have? Do you feel like regularly you want to be waking up early or do you feel like you want to like, do you, will our quality time likely be like later in the evening or, you know, how do you feel about cooking? If you don't already cook, like, would you be willing to like pick up that skill and then we can kind of share that responsibility? How many times a week or how many times a month would you cook or would I cook? How do we feel about childcare? Am I the only person who's going to watch my kid or do I have like a handful of people? So imagine if those questions were spelled out and you could have the conversation, not in a triggered, heightened space of like already there's a problem. So now we have to talk about it and figure out how do you feel? How do I feel? But we're in that heightened uh, nervous system state of like, I'm mad about something. And you're way before the curve. You're like, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? Are you open to suggestion? How do you think this will change? That ideally, I mean, it's, it's not the norm. Normally, people have to figure it out as they're going through it, but ideally, that would be awesome. And and those questions are totally, you know, uh, spelled out with that level of specificity, which is nice. Yeah, totally. I mean, the only thing we did pre counseling wise was there's this there's this like checklist uh, uh, that had been going around, and we both get the same questions, and you kind of check what you would do, and you and yeah. you compare it, and and like that. So, yeah, I mean, that's really. It, it would save a lot of, you know, getting really granular, granular, like you said, like childcare and working and all these different things or, you know, um, quality time and all that stuff. That's very important. And I think that's definitely something that should be mentioned beforehand. But, you know, there's also if you get, get that granular beforehand and you have so many disagreements even about that, then it's like, isn't it isn't it kind of like shooting it? before it's like able to fly somewhere where it could be, you know, go into something else, you know, or is it, isn't it kind of like making things co too complex before they need to be? Mm, arguably they're already complex. We're just so intoxicated by the, I like you phase that we're yeah. not seeing it. Right? right. And so, you know, there's, there's a component of the romance is nice and the excitement of the relationship is nice. And it's nice for it to take flight of its own momentum. And also we're not predictors of the future. There are things that I, that I do and think and feel now that I don't think when Bali and I got together 10 years ago, I would have known about myself. So it's not like you're giving these answers as like, I'm going to cook three times a week. And if you don't cook four times a week, then we might as well not do this like that. I, it's not right. meant to be that. But it's meant to be like, how do I feel about cooking? How, what do I see as my role? How do I feel about children? How do I feel about communication? When is quality time for me? How much time do I spend with my friends? So it's meant less to be a contract, although some things can be contracted. It's meant to be more of like a fodder for like good conversation. Are we talking about these things, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. to kind of put a light kind of bursting of the romantic bubble uh, you need to talk about these things because the level of attachment is accelerating so fast Yes, that you might be like neck deep in a relationship and be like, I didn't realize they didn't want to have kids, but I want to have kids. And so now what's going to happen, right? And so basically you're going to have to figure these questions out. And, and as devotees, we can't buy into the kind of like myth or the Hollywood or the Disney or whatever of just like the romance is going to figure it all out. We have to know that that's like the top layer of the relationship and it waxes and wanes like a lot. You know, they compare it to like an ocean. The top layer is that choppy layer. You can't really rely on that. Right. Deeper than that is the friendship. And then even deeper than that is the commitment. 
So sometimes wow. in your relationship, you're going to have to, you can like coast and it's like all good. But then if it gets choppy, you need to dive a little deeper and lean into your friendship. And then if it gets really tough, there might be times when even the friendship doesn't seem to like nourish you. And you might have to dive a little deeper and hold your breath a little longer and lean into that commitment. And then hopefully you're able to kind of come back for air and kind of move. Like I've experienced that in my relationship. I don't know if you've experienced that in, in yours with Tulsi, where you have to lean into like the different levels totally. of how you guys are connected. The way you're, the way you're visualizing it is like uh, perfect. It's, it's so true. You know, yeah. that top layer is like, you know, kind of, and then the friendship, super important commitment, right. even more important for sure. Yeah. I definitely have to dive into that. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's very important that the commitment is there because it's it's just a it's just a huge part of I feel like in 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 my marriage about uh, you know this is this is the most important thing right now and and also I think like in Krishna consciousness the thing we're lacking a lot is like example I mean not lacking but we 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 have we need more examples of really good Krishna conscious marriages I think it's it's very important for a society to that wants to grow and children that want to you know, uh, you know, be grown up in a in a, in a nice community and and a society. It's a very important thing to have good examples of of devotees of devotee yeah, houses. It's, it's the primary unit of society. The primary yeah. unit of society is not the individual. It's the couple. It's the marriage. Yeah. Because society doesn't exist with a bunch of individuals just hanging out with it. It's actually society becomes society when there's two, right? It's the Grihasta Ashram. It's going to be in the pyramid of society. It's that bottom part that's the heftiest part. It's going to be the majority of our society. And as time progresses, I can only see it being more the majority of society. So it has to be super healthy. If marriages are not thriving, then households are not thriving. And if households are not thriving, then pockets of communities are not thriving. And then the whole community is not thriving. And then what's going to happen with the society? So there's no way to overstate the importance of a healthy marriage. Mm. Are there any... Are there any point are there is there any points where someone should walk away from a marriage yeah for sure i think that in any situation of abuse that's automatically you know the contract has been broken already the person to right. leave because of abuse hasn't broken the contract the abuser has right and so in cases of that you know and that's also something you can talk about in premarital counseling. That could be something that's contracted, which is what are my deal breakers? And people are going to have deal breakers. And that's something that you can talk about with your spiritual mentors, that you can talk about with your guru, that you can talk about with your grihasta mentors, which is what's fair to have on the table as a deal breaker. And it might not be exactly what, what is stated as like the ultimate ideal in, in terms of grihasta life, but does my partner know what they are? Right. Do I know what my partner's deal breakers are? Because they may not be the same. So that's a conversation to be had. And, and that might look different from couple to couple. But on a universal level, you know, I think by now, especially it's it's not obvious, but it's important to highlight that. Um, yeah. Situations of abuse are definitely a deal breaker. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that. That's, that's something in premarital counseling that you can ask, you know, what is a deal breaker? That's. That's also makes it makes sense actually. Um, when it comes to like, I feel like right now I'm 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 kind of very introspective, and I know a lot, of, kind of much more about myself than I did 
you know, eight years mm. ago. So what are things that we should be asking ourselves to encourage kind of introspection and personal development before we go into a relationship? Again, I, got, I feel like I got that from ex, from just going through it. And I don't think that that's probably not the best way. I think it, there's ways, you know, you can highlight, I'm sure, that we're, we can, there's things to do before. Yeah, I think, you know, one thing is to lean into already existing healthy relationships you might have in your life where people really know you well and they can see you kind of outside of yourself, right? Because there's a tendency that when I look at myself, I might tend to magnify my own flaws or I might tend to um, magnify my own good qualities, right? Or whatever it is, I might have a skewed vision of myself. I might have blind spots, right? So in addition to kind of introspection, which we'll get to, I think, having healthy relationships where people say, you know, I, th I think you're kind of more of an introvert. It seems like when you're in like large crowds, it like spends your energy really quickly. You seem to get a lot from you just kind of going home and recovering, having time for yourself, having time for your sadhana, having quiet time. When yeah. someone says that to you, you're like, you know what? That's true. I think that. It so then that's something to know, because then when I get to a relationship, if I'm with someone that's like an extrovert, obviously this is a personal example because I'm an introvert and I'm married to an extrovert. <laughs> But basically, oh God, I was just going to tell you that I'm the same way. <laughs> I mean, I'm not super, I'm not super introverted, but I, but like when you speak, like when you're saying like you expend a lot of energy when you're with other people, but when you're at totally. home, you feel like, so I'm totally, like, <laughs> that's what yeah, it is. Actually weird. introvert, introvert, and extrovert. That's what that means. It means where do you recharge your batteries? Right. Oh, okay. So okay. I can be around people and I like being social. I have a beautiful group of friends and I can do things like this or I speak and I, you know, whatever. But then yeah. when I need to recharge my batteries, that's me by myself, probably reading or chanting, I mean, whatever. Yeah. So if I know that about myself, then when I am with somebody, you know, like Bali, who's an extrovert, I can understand like, wow, okay, we've done a lot of traveling and Kirtan programs and met a lot of people and whatever. And I'm feeling a little bit low energy, but I know what I need to plug in. So I can tell my partner like, hey, I'm going to need just like a couple of days to just decomp and be by myself. I don't want right. to feel like I have to do social obligations. And he can know me and say, you know, that's what she needs. Go for it. Likewise, if right. we're in the house a lot and we're just doing home stuff or we're just mostly spending time with each other and Bali comes to me and is like, hey, I really want to hang with my friends. We want to do like a camping trip this weekend. I can see that as like a, an affront to our quality time. Or I can be like, you know what? That's how he recharges his batteries. I benefit from him going to do those things because then I get a more fulfilled partner. When he comes back, he's going to be joyful and recharge with energy, et cetera, even though we do it differently. So it's nice when someone can offer you that reflection. So I don't have to do so much digging to find that out about myself. And then in terms of introspection, a if I could offer maybe like a, a shortcut to getting to know yourself, it's find out what your triggers are, right? In your day-to-day -day life, what kind of stuff ticks you off? What kind of stuff makes you frustrated? And how do you react to that? And that's going to be a goldmine of what's going on for me inside, right? Because if I take a moment of being very emotionally charged and I go, wow, okay, um, when somebody raises their voice, right? Like yelling or an anger that really like, I don't know, that kind of like jolts me. I'm like, okay, well, what's, what's around that? Was that something from my childhood? Is it that I, I experienced it as aggression? How do, what do I feel about aggression or how would I want my partner to speak to me? Oh, well, I, maybe I want somebody who speaks a little sweetly and doesn't raise their voice. Okay. Well then when I interact with somebody, I'll want to pay attention to how they speak. Mm. Right. Or I get antsy if my room is messy. Okay, well, what does, is it a control thing? So you can really dig into that. Um, 
because it allows you to kind of see, okay, where's the juice at? You know, if you stay at the level of like, you know, this is my favorite Kirtan singer and I like to travel and it's like, how much juice is there going to be? And that's obvious and that's good for you, but you're not going to be able to do that deep digging because it's not hitting those like emotional kind of like sensitive spots that are what are going to naturally be triggered with your partner. You're going to find a partner. It doesn't matter who you are. That's going to trigger your emotional soft spots. It's engineered to be that way, actually. Right. Yeah. Definitely. I, I mean, that that point of how to be how to be opposites, but also understand where your partner recharges. That's so important because if you don't understand that, then you're gonna, like you said, you're gonna take it as an affront to your quality time together, and and you know, and uh, yeah, I wish I knew that. I wish I knew that. <laughs> I wish I knew that. <laughs> Oh, well, gosh. you know, it's interesting. There's there's a relationship uh, theorists. They say they're these fantastic researchers, John Gottman and his wife, and they they have this thing called the Love Labs, where they study relationships over the course of decades, and it's really very like scientific, uh, rigorous kind of research. And so they found that there are certain things that de are um, determinants of happy, long lasting couples, like the long lasting couples that are most satisfied. And one of like the top three determinants was they allow each other to influence one another. Right. Wow. So one of the determined determinants of satisfaction in long term relationships is allowing mutual influence. I allow my partner and how they do things differently to influence how I do things. So rather than seeing it as like you're an extrovert, I'm an introvert, you do things your way, I do things my way. That's going to be at the beginning. It's going to be like that. And as we grow in trust and in, in confidence and intimacy and vulnerability, I'm actually going to see what happens when I allow the way Bali does stuff to influence me and it pushes me a little bit further outside my comfort zone. And what happens when he starts doing things a little like how I do them and my influence is allowed that pushes him outside his comfort zone. You're actually growing as people because you're growing in your skills. You're growing in your abilities. Oh, I can hang a little longer than I used to in big crowds of people and not feel exhausted because I'm allowing Bali's influence. And Bali can be introspective and have his personal space and recharge in private a little longer. You know, that kind of thing yes. is actually good for you. It's not meant to be a hard boundary. It's meant to be self-knowledge, but then with trust and love, like allowing that, that mutual influence and that can tip into your spiritual life too because we're as sadhakas we're going to be different we're going to have different interests we're going to have different skills so to what extent do i allow my partner's spiritual skills and abilities and interests to influence me in a positive way and vice versa and then all of a sudden you've spiritualized your relationship it's not about like how do we last to the 60 year mark because that's what a good marriage is like no how do we infuse our marriage and our home life with like really healthy Krishna consciousness because I'm learning how to do things beyond my comfort zone. Wow. Wow. Allow your partner to influence you yeah. in a, and you know, but it, it also can go the other way. It can be a bad influence sometimes as well. Like sure. things that you don't want to pick up. For sure. Absolutely. And I think you see that, right. Which is like, one partner starts slipping with their rounds and the other partner starts slipping with their rounds or one, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Um, it's important to know. And it's also, it's like such a reality check for myself. Like what a powerful force of influence I am that by me thriving yes. in my spiritual life, I've not only contributed to my responsibility to myself, it's also I'm responsible to my partner. And that might be actually what creates a safety net. Maybe I don't want to finish my rounds. 
But if I do and my partner sees me do it, is that that little grain of encouragement and enthusiasm that they need to push on and finish their rounds? Not that I should impose that in any way because that's whack, but, you know, will it allow that mutual influence? And certainly it has. There have been times where my sadhana has straight up 100% been saved by looking at Bali and being like, look what he's able to do. Yeah. Forth and do this, you know? Right. Wow it's 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 an interesting that how much influence we actually have over each other living together day in and day out it's like a, it's a very it's a very you know it's a full of it's just extremely powerful i feel yeah to what degree kind of like you spoke about krishna consciousness like influencing us in our our you know our relationship with krishna sadhakas and things like that how to what degree can we realistically ex- expect that taking care of our relationship with Krishna will nourish our other relationships? I mean, that's a hundred percent true, and it's vouchsafed by Shastra. So there's no way to deny that that's the case. And um, there's nothing counterindicated in bolstering your relationships with skills and good communication and that kind of thing, you know, in order to benefit your Krishna consciousness is a two-way street, right? Krishna says that he appreciates service to his devotees even more than he appreciates service to himself. So is that going to start, like, when does that start? Does that start when I take Manapras and I'm just like in a community of like older Vaishnava women and then that's when my, no, that's bananas. I'm with devotees right now. So that's got to start right now. That should have started yesterday. Right. So, you know, I think that there's a little bit of a um, myth that like my healthy relationships are going to start the day I arrive in Goloka Vrindavan. And, that, <laughs> and the reality is like, no, my healthy relationships, <laughs> you know, that my first healthy relationship is going to be with Krishna. It's like, come on, he, look at, look at everything he's giving you. He's giving you a wife. He's giving you two kids, he's giving you parents, he's giving you whatever, so that you can love them for him. Can you do that for him? It's literally service to Krishna. So, you know, there's there's no question. And I, I actually got this really beautiful email from a senior Prabhupada disciple where she was, you know, emphasizing that philosophically, we can't get confused that Krishna consciousness in any way depends on anything material, including material relationships. It's not dependent on anything. And you see people who have spiritual success, even though materially their relationships were subpar. But is that the standard that we want to set for our society? Is that like our flagship, like thrive in Krishna consciousness and just let the rest of it. It doesn't make any sense. We should be an example of beautiful, nourishing, thriving, respectful, fulfilling, satisfying relationships because of Krishna consciousness, not as a parallel, not in spite of Krishna consciousness and not in any way as a contradiction to Krishna consciousness because of Krishna consciousness, because we have this most precious nucleus of all of our lives like we should all be thriving because of that because we may be different in so many ways but this is the one thing that we have in common so you know yeah in short i don't think that there's anything wrong with saying that by nourishing your relationship with krishna all other relationships benefit they do but it's gonna be tough for you for me Mm. right it's gonna be tough for me because i'm dealing with these people every single day So I can make it really sweet and beautiful and nourishing and help myself out by having healthy relationships. Or I can just 
I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't encourage bypassing healthy relationships and just, you know, there's no reason that you can't do all of them. In fact, Krishna very much is encouraging us to do all of them. And Bhagavatam and Bhagavad Gita, it's all studies in relationships. It's all studies in relationships, all kinds of relationships, guru, disciple, father, son, husband, wife, you know, all of these relationships. Why would that be so? Right? Why would we have all these examples? What for? It's so that we can see like, oh, this is how relationships are done because I'm going to be in relationships. We're not all going to be renunciates or, you know, yogis in the Himalayas. We're all, you know, goshti anandis. We have to interact with one another. You know, a devotee told me um, that this, that these are not, these family members, they're not yours. They're, they're given to you, loaned to you to take care of by Krishna and to help you know, in their Krishna, uplift them in Krishna consciousness and, and taking care of them in a way, in a, you know, by having healthy relationships is, is a way, is a great way, is the way to take care of them is to make sure they're, you know, all satisfied emotionally and all that, those things. Um, so yeah, I mean, that helps out in to, to, to understand that, okay, these are not, family members are not yours to enjoy, but they're yours as a, to take care of from Krishna. Yeah. And also to be honest, you know, like when we, when we, you know, make prasadam, let's say, you know, we have to understand, okay, this boga was, it's not mine. It came from the earth and I have to honor the earth for that and thank Krishna. And I'm just offering Krishna back what he's given to me. And so this prasadam is not for me. It's actually for Krishna. I just take the remnants. Therefore it shouldn't be tasty. It's just for Krishna. I shouldn't enjoy this at all. It's like, wait a minute. It's supposed right. to be tasty for you as well. When you take those remnants, it's not just tasty because it came from Krishna. It's tasty because you tried to make something tasty for him and you get to benefit from that. Right. So if I'm helping the people around me be healthy, happy devotees, and then I end up benefiting from that, I shouldn't feel bad about that. I shouldn't feel bad that that is enjoyable the way that a rasagula that's been offered is enjoyable. Right. It's enjoyable. <laughs> You're allowed to take a bite into an offered rasagula and be like, Mm, I should be allowed to do that with my relationships. And I do do that with my relationships, you know? It's yeah. a way of expressing gratitude. Thank you, Krishna, for not only accepting this rasagula, but also allowing it to be tasty so I can taste it and be attached to something that came from you. And so it's that healthy attachment, you know what I mean? And speaking of attachment, you know, there's this whole attachment theory, which informs a lot of couples therapy and, and parent-child therapy. So they do all these They've done experiments about what happens when a child has different kinds of attachments to their parent figure, right? And so, um, you know, if a parent is unreliable, the child becomes anxious. If a parent is angry, then the, the child becomes avoidant. And if the parent is very soothing and nurturing and attentive, then the child has what is called secure attachment. So then later on, decades later, they do research about how this translates to couplehood. And when a couple is when a partner is accessible and responsive and, and connected, the other partner feels secure. And that security translates to independence, self-sufficiency, right? So we have this myth of attachment equals codependence. If I feel the love of my family too closely, if I feel that attachment is gonna be detrimental, but research has shown that when an attachment is secure, this doesn't mean codependent, this doesn't mean enmeshed. When attachment is secure, it means I'm here for you, we're solid, I understand you, I see you for who you are, I value you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
actually that's going to increase my chances of being independent. That's going to increase my chances of having good self-worth and of being, uh, you know, self-supportive and all that kind of thing. So if we want healthy people in society, we actually need secure attachment, not just from our parents, but also our spouses and also our friends and our siblings and our, you know, our, our um, power figures, our administrators and that kind of thing. Secure attachment doesn't equal enmeshment. Secure attachment means finally I can like move on from all this psychological baggage, which is also material that's going to hang me up in my spiritual life. When you say secure attachment, how does that, how does that um, like materialize practically? So that would be, what for example, like? well, really a lot of it is, is coming from like the loving exchanges, right? As described in Nectar of Instruction, which is when I reveal my mind in confidence, you know, if you come to me and you're like, you know, Danya, I've, I've been going through, you know, such and such, and I'm, I feel challenged in my parenting in this and this way. And I dismiss you, right? Or I just, right. you know, kind of discount what you're saying. Then you're going to feel like, is she really my friend? Like, can I really connect with her? And you're going to get like mental about it. You're going to have some conversations, but you start like spinning out, right? Whereas if I tell you like, yeah, man, I'm here for you. I don't exactly know what you're going through, but I totally empathize. It sounds like you're having a hard time. And yeah, let me know how I can support you. You've already moved into the next phase. You're not tripping on that anymore. You moved into the next phase where you're like, okay, let's problem solve. And she said that she was going to help or, you know, whatever it is. So practically speaking, what it means is you see people, you hear people, you value them, right? With how you speak to them, with how you behave towards them, even if they look different than you, even if they speak different, if they have different views, if they aren't your friends on Facebook or whatever it is. You treat people with such respect and such authenticity and you allow for like genuine connection. And then that allows people to relax and feel secure. And so they don't get into that very material plane of the mind of like being mental and gossiping and worrying about relationships and being nervous. And, and that generates anxiety. It generates depression. It's like a super destabilizing energy when you don't have a secure attachment. So it's, it's really simple. It's actually more simple than having insecure attachment because insecure attachment comes with all this baggage. And then we have to be like unpacking and untangling that all the time. So you're saying that a, the secure attachment means when, when you, when you said, okay, uh, when that person kind of validates what you're saying and then you're able to move past that kind of first door, right? That's what secure attachment means. Yeah, secure attachment means I think I can count on the people around me. I see. I okay. feel like the people around me have my best interests in mind. I feel like they're rooting for me. Right? And then that gets into like the other nectar of instruction verse where it's talking about the qualities that are conducive for Krishna consciousness. The first one is enthusiasm, right? Yeah. So enthusiasm is something you can give. It's not just something that pops up in your mind one day like, I'm so psyched about blah, blah, blah. When Bali's chanting Japa and I'm like, man, you're killing it with your rounds today. You got them done so early. You're amazing, right? What is that doing for him? That's giving yeah. him not just encouragement in an obvious way, but it's telling him like, you can count on me to see you when you're doing well. You can count on me to encourage you. I see you. I value you. Your spiritual qualities and your spiritual behavior is valuable to me. And the same way right? Uh, vice versa. So having that really, again, it's, it translates to easy things. I see you, I hear you, I value you, right? And and you can count on me. I'm here for you. That's something that I didn't know for sure. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I, as a man, I'm like, 
I like it should be a given. I I I I value you. I provide for you. I I I don't need to say it. You don't need but, to but say it. But it's but it's but, but you should say it, right? I mean, that's a if if that person accepts uh kind of com- and it communicates in that way, then you should like you, like you said, you're killing it with your rounds and stuff. That's like I didn't know that. Like it, I should I have to be more like that, and I, I so had to it's learn. Nice. It's nice to be, and this gets into like, you ever hear about the love languages? Oh yeah, yeah, love languages. Yeah, so that's that's what that gets into, right? There's five love languages. It's uh, words of affirmation, physical touch, giving and receiving gifts, acts of service and quality time. So I have certain love languages that are kind of primary that are gonna be higher up on the list and ones that are like kind of whatever to me. And those may change over time also. Like when you become a parent or a householder, acts of service is like really big because sometimes that's all you can give to the other person. So, um, so, you know, but, but for example, I'm pretty high on words of affirmation, even if Bali and I are not able to spend quality time. And even if he doesn't like buy me gifts, which is sort of low on the list for me, if he says something sweet to me or something encouraging, or even something kind of jokey and playful, I feel that connection immediately. I receive that as love. So it's basically saying all of these five languages are valid communications of love. So if I understand my partner and not even just romantic partner, literally anybody around me, if I understand what their love languages are and they understand what mine are, then I become fluent and I start seeing love everywhere actually, right? So if you offer to your family as a provider, financial stability and working hard and just giving that security, then it's very possible that acts of service or gift giving in the sense of seeing your financial contribution as a gift may be your love language. And part of that is cultural and part of that is your upbringing and your parents' love language and all that kind of stuff influences it. Now, if your partner sees that and is like, hey, that's his love language. You know, he doesn't really like say so much, but he's really about serving the family. You hear couples talk about their partners like that all the time. And you see that and you go, that's the same. That's the same love as someone else writing me a card, as someone else buying me a gift, as someone else spending quality time with me. That's that same love. I just speak that language and vice versa. And I, and and again, allowing that mutual influence means sometimes I, I speak my partner's primary language, even if it's not my primary language and yeah. vice versa, right? Maybe quality time is not words of affirmation, but if that's what my partner needs and maybe when I want to connect with them, I can stretch and do it in their love language sometimes too. So it's not to say that by saying it or not saying it's better or not better communication. It's about, is that your partner's love language? Do they appreciate that? Would that be the most encouraging thing for them, right? And if it is, then yeah, stretch in that direction. And if it's not, if they're like acts of service, then maybe you mowing the lawn matters way more to them than you being like, you're killing it with your job or whatever it is, right? So it's, it's about knowing your partner. And that's another thing you could talk about in couples counseling or premarital counseling, which is like, what are my default or preferred ways of giving and receiving love? Yeah, I was going to ask, how, does, how do you even know that? There's like, like literally your love a quiz. Is. There's oh, a really? quiz and it takes like two and a half minutes to take. I think it's like maybe eight questions or something. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. And if you, and, and your partner can usually tell, and you can usually tell, like yeah. there's indicators of that. Like, oh yeah, I tend to appreciate this or appreciate that. If you think about it a little bit and you read on it, the book is really short. It's by Gary Chapman, the five love languages. Um, you can read it and it'll become pretty clear um, pretty quickly. Oh, I think these are, you usually have like a primary and a secondary. When you talk about stretching yourself to 
their love language, how much do you, how do you know how to balance that in regards to your own and then to theirs? It's probably going to be trial and error, to be honest. It's probably going to be trial and error where you go like, wow, I, I did too much. And now I'm out of my comfort zone. And it's also about reciprocity, right? I might stretch pretty far in the direction of my partner, but it makes a world of difference if I feel like they also stretch far in the direction of my love language. Yeah. Right. And then are there some love languages that we have in common? Like Bali and I have quality time in common. So even if we're not saying anything to each other, and even if we're not like directly serving one another, just to be in each other's vicinity and just be kind of being in that quiet appreciation of one another, that's something that we share. And there's only five love languages. So it's likely that you're going to converge on one of them. And so maybe amplifying that one as one that you understand, a lot of it is awareness. A lot of it is, uh, is awareness of like, oh, that's my partner's love language. And they've been telling me they love me this whole time. It's just not in my language. So I wasn't understanding and vice versa. So much to, uh, there's so much things, there's so many things you can do to improve your relationship with others. There's so many things you can read all these things that you're talking about. What would you say is the top thing you can do? Not just in a marriage, but in with everyone. The top, the top thing you can work on when it comes to relationships. Hmm, that's a good question. I think that really finding whatever tools will allow you to develop the qualities that you think make you a good partner. So taking that personal responsibility of, I think a good partner speaks respectfully. Okay, so then let me work on speaking respectfully. I think that right. a good partner, you know, invests time in their relationship. Okay, so then let me develop tools to be able to like have quality time, et cetera, et cetera. So we tend to say, I want this, I want that. And look at the other person and say, well, you better get this. You better do this. You better blah, 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 right? or the relationship is not working because these things haven't just popped up organically. Rather than taking responsibility and say, whatever I wanna see, I should be responsible for producing that. That's, if I wanna yeah. see fun in my relationship, I better come up with some fun stuff to do. If I wanna see spiritual progress in my relationship, I better get on my spiritual life. If I wanna, so basically do the things that you want to do as a couple and then see what happens see what happens when you really assume that personal responsibility and that will naturally guide you to the books that will help you the people that will help you and more importantly than even books is the association you can read books all day and night but there's nothing like seeing a couple or a relationship parent child sibling work relationship service relationship there's nothing like seeing like a really healthy symbiotic relationship and to bask in the glow of that, you know, on a spiritual level, association is so important. Like you were saying, you know, these role models are essential. So to be around people who have already cracked the code in some way, that's going to do for you what no book and no seminar and no whatever is ever going to be able to do. You know, just like the guru through his mercy and his association is able to infuse you with spiritual progress that you would never have been able to achieve alone. That same thing can happen with spiritual mentors because these are also Vaishnavas. So they also have that personal Shakti to help you in your ashram from their place in that same ashram. Great point. Definitely, if you want to see something 
change, do that thing yourself. That's so powerful. If you want to see spiritual advancement, if you want to see even something mundane like cleanliness or something, like do that yourself and before you point fingers at someone else. Not just before pointing fingers because that's that's a good healthy thing to do. It's also I have to think that as my consciousness evolves, the way that I see my partner will also change. If I don't like what I'm seeing, not only am I responsible for changing stuff and upgrading myself as much as possible because that's my responsibility and also that's the position of humility to bring it back to what your first point was. The position of humility isn't like, oh, woe is me, I'm a woman's stool. It's like, no, humility means, have I really mastered this? Have I really got it? Like, I think I got it before I start looking to my partner to see if they got it or whatever. So that right. position of humility and personal responsibility comes first. And also understanding that I see my partner according to where I'm at. That's a fact. And so if I upgrade, then I'll see my partner a little different my lens will start to become more clear. I'll be less conditioned. I'll be less biased. I have less baggage. I'm not seeing them through the lens of trauma, conditioning, my childhood stuff, what the media is telling me, what Hollywood is selling me, what all the other dysfunctional relationships I know. To the extent that I upgrade in my spiritual life, I'm going to have greater clarity. That's the whole point is that you're giving the reins to the intelligence instead of letting these horses of the mind like run horses of the senses run free, right? Right. So that's the idea. The idea is I have to count on this guarantee that Gita is giving me, that Bhagavatam is giving me, which is that I see things more clearly when I'm spiritually stable. So if I develop those skills and I'll see everything, including and foremost, my partner more clearly. Hmm. I find, I find that a lot, not a lot, but I, I interact with couples where there is a lot of, um, compatibility but spiritually there might not be compatibility and there creates some kind of either bad feeling or uh bad feeling from from the person who feels like they're better or and the person who feels like they're worse both get, get magnified like anything what would you say to someone who's kind of struggling with that because i see that a lot who do you uh who do you find is usually the more upset one That's a good question. <laughs> no, um, maybe I would say probably the person who, 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 who doesn't make the mark, or who feels like they He's don't more make the upset. mark. Yeah. So it's 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 uh, important to it. Yeah, actually, maybe the person, because when I when I when you talk about it, it's it's like, it's like it sounds even silly, like why. Uh, you know, maybe not actually not silly because there, there is compatibility and spiritual compatibility is a thing, right? Is that a thing? It can be, sure. Yeah. I would say maybe the person who wants the other person to maybe level up a little bit or something like that, maybe they're more upset. I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's my a good experience. question. Oh, my yeah. experience is that the person who's upset is usually the one who is more on top of their sadhana. Right. Which is a huge wake up call, because if you are disturbed, <laughs> even though right. you're the more consistent spiritual practitioner, what's going on there? What's Autumn, happening yeah. there? Yeah. Right. Good point. If, if you are practicing 
then you should know, first of all, to come to terms with I'm a practitioner. I am not yet an expert. Again, that, that point of humility. The basis of my sadhana has to be the humility. The basis of my relationship has to be humility. So when I approach someone and I see that they're struggling with their rounds, they're struggling with reading, they're struggling with the four regs, rather than see it like, hello, can you keep up with me? Like, I'm trying to make it back to Godhead in this lifetime and you are weighing me down with your lack of discipline, right? Rather than seeing it like that, you have an opportunity to say, I know what that feels like actually. I know what it feels like to be struggling in my job, but I know what it's like to not want to read. And I know what it's like to not be in good association. I have actually been there and it wasn't that long ago <laughs> when I was there. So yes. can I extend to this person compassion, right? Can I extend to this person encouragement, right? That like finger wagging thing, even on a material level, someone doing the dishes, what like who has ever been like, I developed my love for washing dishes when my husband scolded me because the dishes were not. No, it's like you develop qualities based on good association. So if your partner is struggling, then call it that. This person is struggling. So what do you do when somebody struggles? If you're a sadhaka and you see somebody struggling and you wag your finger at them, what's happening with me spiritually? What qualities am I really developing? Are my values and are my behavior a reflection of, yeah, I've been on top of my sadhana. How do I know that my sadhana is actually doing what it's supposed to do? I'm supposed to actually see, and this is important, Sachinandan Swami talks about this a lot. He says, you are supposed to see tangible results in your behavior and in your relationships. You're supposed to see it. You're supposed to feel happiness when you chant. You're supposed to see other devotees and feel joy. You're supposed to offer respect to others because it's just born from you, not as a routine. If that's not happening, then I want to question. Yeah, I want to question what. Okay, so then maybe I do have something to work on. Maybe they're struggling in quantity and maybe I'm struggling in quality. Am I focused in my rounds? Is it just a check on the box, right? Is this an opportunity for me to grow into some serious spiritual qualities? So in my experience, it has been the more uh, efficient practitioner who tends to have that kind of critical critical perspective and, and they're unhappy. And then it just creates this kind of storm within the relationship of the other person feeling unworthy. There's nothing more discouraging to sadhana than feeling um, like criticized and looked down on. The only reason any of us ever pick up our japa or get behind a harmonium or play murdanga or want to offer arti is because someone like Prabhupada or someone like our guru marajas or our mentors said, you know what? I think you'd be awesome at this. Can you do this? It's going to make you so happy. This is incredible. It's going to be life change. It was that enthusiasm. Someone was going to be so happy seeing you do this and was encouraging you and celebrating you. You know, my guru Maharaj, she keeps track of how many names of Krishna you chant based on how many rounds you chant. So he's like, oh, you chant, you know, three rounds a day. You know how many that is a year? That's oh, X I saw number that of. Recently on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. So that he, was awesome. he, you chant this many a, a year. Yeah. That's incredible. Oh my! And people are like, ah, like <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. And then people go, you know what? What happens if I chant four? What happens if I chant five? Yeah. Right. Rather than the attitude of like three. Haven't you been a devotee for like ten years? What are three? You know what I mean? Like the, the mood is totally different. I love what you said about you should be seeing tangible results in your behavior and your how the, the way you relate with others about how you're performing your Krishna consciousness. That's so true. I mean, that's something I look over that like anything. 
it's, yeah, it's, I think it's we so all important. Do. I mean, I, 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 and I feel it too. Like if, if I'm like doing well, then like everything's kind of easier in the way I deal with people and, and deal with Tulsi and my kids and stuff. But if it's like something struggling, then everything's struggling. Like I'm just mm -hmm. seeing the worst in everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. So the rising tide lifts all ships, right? Which is like yeah. when you're when you're really putting in that work and you're looking to develop those Vaishnava qualities, those Vaishnava qualities translate across the board in your work relationships. They translate in the way that you interact with a, a UPS delivery guy. It yeah. translates everywhere. You start because that energy is you because those are your actual innate qualities. It's not something that you're working towards is that you're peeling off all these crap layers of material conditioning and you're actually touching that true essence of who you are. We are all good people. We are all happy sadhakas and, and devotees and we do all love each other we're just out of touch with that and so it's basically it's like yeah. don't try and reinvent the wheel just get to those essential qualities and if you feel like you're really far from them then that's something to to really take a look at and then it goes back to that personal responsibility if i have a super short temper you know but that's for me to figure out that's not on anybody else and i can change japa all day but if that japa is not sincere and i'm not looking into like what's happening with it then i can't go and chase somebody else and be like well you're a japa blah it's like just figure out your temper and keep chanting your japa <laughs> yes <laughs> for those of us for those of you listening please uh ask questions in the comments we're going to be taking questions pretty soon uh this is a fantastic conversation i'm getting so i'm taking all these <laughs> notes and stuff um <laughs> um, the next question I would say, like, what do you feel is like the most common problem with devotee couples? Man, that's a super good question. And, and it, um, it will change a little bit from time to time, but I feel like a lot of devotee couples struggle with like very heavy feelings of guilt guilty right. that i'm not a good enough devotee guilty that i don't do um that my life doesn't look the same as when i was maybe a single practitioner right, right. Uh, for men Huge. or for women right so yeah. there's that feeling of guilt of like um am i really making progress is this you know am i doing this right right and i think that that's a big question and i think that it's difficult because when you look at the history of our movement, because there hasn't been, like you said, so much exposure to like healthy couples and, and leadership in the movement hasn't typically looked like couples, um, then it's hard for us to find examples of like, am I doing this right? Right? So yeah. it's a little bit um, tricky. And uh, and those feelings of guilt are like very heavy, you know, even, even dealing with basic desires you know and basic relationship hang-ups or you know the kind of stuff that everybody goes through when going through being married or having kids you know feeling massive guilt like i'm you know i'm not krishna conscious enough my like two-year-old doesn't know the pramasamhita by heart and so i'm god it's like super <laughs> super heavy yeah. guilt of like how do i know that i'm doing this right and you know, if my kids are not Prahlad Maharaj and I'm not Kardama Muni and Devahuti, then like, am I doing this right? You know what I mean? So that that heavy guilt is hard. And actually guilt is a paralyzing emotion. You know, in therapy, we say that glue is uh, guilt is like a glue that keeps things stuck right when you're about to change or when you feel like, oh, I can contemplate doing things a little bit differently. I feel guilty and it kind of like slams it all back into place. So that wow. feeling of guilt is actually super immobilizing. It can be paralyzing for your spiritual life and for your relationships. Wow. 
yeah, I mean, that's such a huge thing, the feelings of guilt, definitely. I like that's what you said about when you're trying to make, when you're trying to move forward or you're trying to make a move somehow, the guilt can bring that back. Mm-hmm. What if it's what if it's like someone is not guilt like is it is it healthy to not have any guilt at all? Well, um, Brene Brown, she's like this fantastic researcher. She studies vulnerability and shame. Um, she says that there's a distinction between shame and guilt. She says that you know guilt is like you know one kid on the playground slaps another kid on the playground and then feels bad when they call to their attention like hey you really hurt that kid that's you're not supposed to use your body to hurt other people that's really dangerous that feeling of like oh what i did was not the right choice that's guilt and that's healthy actually um shame is you're such a bad kid only bad kids hit other bad kids you're never going to amount to anything because you don't know how to use your body properly that's shame because i'm attacking who you are Right. So in layman's terms, we'll call it guilt. But really what it is, is shame that these people are experiencing. Guilt is an indicator of I acted outside of my values. And that's actually healthy. Shame is there's something wrong with me. I'm a problem. I'm inherently unworthy because of X, Y, Z. So that would be the the distinction to make. I don't think that I don't think that not having guilt is healthy. I think that we should all have a healthy dose of guilt in that in that context, not in the typical way we use the word guilt. Right. That's that's a great point about the shame and the guilt. Let's take some questions from the comment section. Um, this is a great conversation. So a lot of good questions. Um, first, a little shout out here, Juggy Kirtan. Who said you can be so cool? I, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's one. Recently, we saw how vulnerability is encouraged. Like, don't shy away from being vulnerable in terms of relationships. What are your thoughts about that? Um, well, I would say yes. And I would also add a little asterisk to that. I think that vulnerability is a necessary component, right? When, when, um, you know, Rupa Goswami talks about uh, revealing in confidence and inquiring in confidence, that's what vulnerability means, because it means we're not talking about the weather and we're not talking about like, oh, did you read this Gita verse today or what? He's saying, you know, ultimately with the goal of connecting it to tell me about Krishna and how you relate to Krishna. So it's not about mundane things when he's talking about it, but he says in confidence, like with real revelation of your heart. So that's what vulnerability means. However, um, I think that because we have this kind of idealistic view of what we'd like our society to be, and because theoretically we just love devotees so much and we want to be one big happy family, we have this belief that this should extend to everybody. And at the level of being an Uttamadikari, it will extend to everybody. But for those of us who are not at that level, such as myself, (laughs) we have to be very careful who we're vulnerable with, right? So Brene Brown, that same researcher, she says that the people that you're that you should kind of have that level of deep connection and vulnerability with, you should be able to write their names on a one by one square of paper. That's like teeny. That's teeny. That's like just a couple of names. And when you see people who have these really mature, deep, nourishing relationships, usually that circle is small and that trust is earned. It's not automatic. So I can be vulnerable with people whose trust I have earned and who have earned my trust. And that's based on behavior. That's based on showing up. That attachment, secure attachment that we were talking about before, right? right? So 
that's going to be something that I, I need to be very careful with because vulnerability in the good sense is my ability to like kind of reveal myself. But vulnerability in the bad sense means I'm liable to get really hurt. Yeah. So yeah, vulnerability is important if we want to make deep, genuine connections, but we have to be very careful with ourselves. And, <clears throat> you know, the, the, the creeper of bhakti is always described as this like very delicate little plant, right? So yes. you take care of Tulsi Devi. When she's teeny tiny, how careful are you with her? Very careful. Literally, yeah. it's like you just see, I mean, you're always careful with her, but when they're teeny tiny creepers, it's like you see just like a tiny thing and you got to pick it off. And then you see that like she's slanting a little bit, you got to add soil. You got to, not too much light, not too So that level of care is what we need to give to our creeper, especially if you're a beginning practitioner, as I am, I have to be very careful. So they say, you know, in, in, in Chaitanya Charitamrita, it says that you reinforce the boundaries around your bhakti creeper with association. That's the fence, right? The fence is yeah. the association of the sadhus. So being very careful and then also being attentive that I, I can't just reveal my innermost kind of spiritual self, you know, kind of willy nilly to anybody all the time, not because there's anything inherently wrong with it, but because I may not be ready to handle that. If someone speaks differently or thinks differently than me or approaches me in a way that I don't feel safe, you know, whatever it is, um, it can really affect me spiritually. So in our own best self-interest, we want to keep that circle very small, especially as we're beginner, beginner practitioners. Yeah, someone told me, like, it's actually, it could be one or two people. Like, even, like it is, it's it's a very, it's a very important thing, but it's also a thing that's uh, very sensitive, like you mentioned. Yeah. Being vulnerable with others. Okay. Oh, look, Tulsi's listening. A wonderful devotee actually suggested premarital counseling to me, but I was so defensive thinking that counseling meant there was a problem. So I never mm -hmm. took the opportunity. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, the, the word counseling can have this like baggage to a stigma to it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's less and less now because I think at this point, everybody knows somebody who's been in counseling and is like, has had a nice experience and has grown and learned. And so I think that little by little, it's becoming de-stigmatized. And I think people are yeah. seeing the benefits to it. And that being said, it's it's never too late, really. You can always benefit, even if it's just as a, as a tune-up. You know, we talk about it like going to the gym. Do you only want to go to the gym when you're like horribly unfit and you're inflexible and you don't feel strong and you feel lethargic and everything hurts? Like, you can start going to the gym then. You should start going to the gym then. But ideally, you're going to the gym regularly so that you don't become kind of physically dysfunctional in those ways. So yeah. if you want to be limber and fit in terms of relationships, you can always benefit from going to counseling when things are going really well. It's actually a great time to work on stuff. Yeah, definitely. Um, how does one support someone who has a lot of emotional baggage, not just partners, but also friends or family members? Yeah. So, you know, this is going to look differently um, from person to person. I would say that uh, a place to start is to see what is my actual bandwidth, coming to terms with my own actual capacity, 
right? Some people are like, yeah, you know, I can speak on the phone for one hour with this loved one every day just to check in on them and see how they're doing. And other people are like, yeah, I can't do that. I can maybe, you know, hang out with you once a week and offer you a, a listening ear or something like that. Or, you know, I'm, I, I don't feel so comfortable talking about this, but I can cook you meals every once in a while. I'm happy to go to the temple with you or, you know, whatever it is. So it's knowing what are you actually capable of giving that's not going to burn you out or create resentment. So that's boundary work, right? Um, how much right. energy can I give this without harming myself and then resenting the other person? And once you recognize what that boundary is, maybe helping that person seek other resources, right? Do they need counseling help? Do they need, you know, they nowadays they have apps. There's a there's an app called uh, Headspace where it's like literally 24 hours a day you can chat or call or speak to a therapist and you just oh, wow. pay like an ab subscription, which is like, I think maybe like 20 bucks a month or something like that. And it's it's help at the touch of your phone. As often as you go on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, you could be connecting with a trained licensed professional who could give you emotional support. So it might be kind of helping someone navigate like, hey, this is the help that's out there available for these kinds of issues. This is beyond my scope. This is beyond my bandwidth. I, I don't know how to handle this. I find this overwhelming too. I'm with you I, and I'm not trying to leave you stranded. I'm actually trying to help you get the help that's going to be more effective for you. So um, it could be like kind of walking with somebody in the direction of, of further help, I would say. Right. When you mean emotional support, um, can you give in a few examples? Emotional support from the friend or from the professional? Uh, like from the friend. Yeah. So, you know, uh, let's say somebody's struggling really difficult, like work-life balance. Like work is just consuming them and they have a lot of fears yeah. around finances and that kind of thing. Um, it's outside of my bandwidth to provide like financial support for my friends. I'm not able to do that. But you know, I know that they could really benefit from like getting out in nature like once a week. So maybe the emotional support that I provide is like, hey, I'm going to take a drop a walk in this local park by my house. Why don't I pick you up and you can join me and we can walk around for like one hour a week. We can like make it our thing. Let's just do that for like the month of June. Once a week, I'll pick you up. We'll chant around in the park. And then, you know, maybe afterwards we can get like some iced tea or something like that. And then that's emotional support. Why? Because it comes down to that basic thing, which is I'm available. I'm responsive to your needs. And I'm creating that genuine connection. I care about you. That's what I'm saying, right? In my love language, which might be quality time, right? Um, yeah. It might be, you know, I know that they're struggling. We're using this example of like the work-life balance. Maybe they just have zero downtime. But I shoot them a text every couple of days and I'm just like, hey, thinking about you. I hope everything is going okay. You know, you're an awesome person. And I know right now it's a struggle, but it probably won't always be like this. So just, you know, keep your hopes up. I'll be praying for you. And, you know, Krishna's in your heart. I think if you if you pray to him, maybe he'll give you a solution that will work for you. Right. And so I, I'm it's not what does it take me to write a text message like that? Twenty five seconds. But that yeah. might make somebody's whole day. So that's that emotional support that we're talking about. And it's for me, it's very perhaps easy access to do that where maybe it's not easy access for me to like sit and talk with them, you know, on a regular basis or whatever it is. So it's yeah, it's, it's becoming creative, really. It's saying I care about this person. Let me see within the bounds of what I'm actually able to do. Um, how can I get creative in, in showing this person love? How do you how do you personally um juggle like having a wide network of friends like as a devotee you know we all have so many friends 
So how do you kind of juggle like, okay, I need to take care of, you know, you want to take care of everyone. You want to be, you want to give everyone emotional support, all your friends, but, but you, you only have so much time, Mm -hmm. you know, at being a mother, being a wife, being, you know, professional, all that stuff. So how do you juggle that? Yeah, I think it's also it's compounded by the fact that I am introverted, as we were talking about, because then when I'm recovering from all that stuff that I do, it te- I tend to want to do that alone, right? <laughs> so yeah, if I was an extrovert, yeah. it'd be easy because I would recharge my batteries around all these people, but it's usually right. not. So, yes. um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely stepping outside of my comfort zone and saying um, I I want to be intentional about creating quality time. And this is an area that I I'm, I continue to work on. Right. It's a skill that I'm continuing to work on, which is, you know, if I'm not able to see my friends in person, do I try and keep in touch with them? Do I use social media or text messaging, et cetera, to my advantage? Right. Sometimes it's as simple as like shooting a friend like a a picture of your kid and just being like, hey, you know, we're at the Springs thinking of you, love you. And that could really mean something to somebody. It, It means a lot to me when people do that, you know. It's also taking advantage of the time that we do have together. So like here in Alatra, we have a, a, a reading group, like a book group, where some of my closest friends and I get together every week. And we've been doing it for years now. We get together every week, one day of the week, and we you know pick a book that is about self-improvement or spiritual life, whatever. And we read together. And that feels like quality time. It's very nourishing for our relationship. Sometimes we share and you know that kind of thing. Um, serving together. So sometimes that looks like, you know, okay, I have to be a mom to Nama. I'm going to take her to the park. Is Nadia at the park? Can I take her to the park if Nadia is going to be there with Amia? And then can Brenda join? So luckily in a place like Alachua, we're physically, you know, in person with some of our closest friends. And so I can do what I'm doing alongside other people who are doing a similar service. And then that service becomes not just easier, but also more joyful because then I'm getting my needs met as I'm giving to my child. Same thing with couple stuff. I mean, I have quality time with Bali and at the same time, I feel like I enjoy his company when we hang out with other couples. And so that's a way of me giving my emotional support and presence to that couple. And then also, you know, sharing with my husband. So sometimes it looks like kind of multitasking, like trying to uh, layer (laughs) things onto one another. Um, Yeah. yeah, But it, it means actively looking for ways to improve that. I don't know that there's like a formula for it. It just means you're constantly working at it. For sure. When you were talking about it, I, I noticed that you're like very aware of, of what your needs are. And for me personally, I don't feel like I understand. I, I have an idea, but not, it's not very clear. And I think, like you said, taking that exam online, that whatever two minute thing and knowing what your love language is and also yeah. even things beyond what the love language is, like what are some kind of ways that I can understand more. I mean, you did, you did touch on that for sure, but even further, like what, like really understand what your needs are. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, we talked about, you know, using your triggers because usually when you're triggered, you're like upset or sad, or it's usually an unmet need, right? So what's the need behind what you're asking for? Right. Um, okay, so like for example, the living room is messy. That triggers me. Yeah. So what's so let's unpack that. What's the, the is the need for me to have a a nice environment or something? Is that what it how to kind of so is that how to ex- make that equation? 
we could explore that. And that's when a counselor would come in handy because a counselor is going to ask you questions that will help you get kind of at the heart of it, right? I might ask you like, you know, was one of your parents a stickler for cleanliness when you were growing up? Um, yeah, probably yeah. both of them. <laughs> both of them. Did they make you feel bad about it? Did you ever feel like bad because you weren't neat or clean? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Okay. I got yelled so at then, a hundred times for not having clean room and stuff for sure. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, at, at some point you might want to revisit, like that's something I could inherit and then pass down, or I can do it a little differently. Interesting. I can say, wow. you know, I, and, and it's not to say that there's anything wrong with it. You could be like, yeah, cleanliness and order. It's like next to godliness. I'm all about it. These kids got to get their stuff together. It's, it's a way of respecting the space. Okay. Then that's a value for you. Or you could say, you know what? I think I'm just kind of on autopilot. I just remember that it was like really important to have the living room clean and I'm just kind of doing it automatically. But do I actually care that much about it? Or is it just like, I don't want it to look bad. And so all of a sudden you start unpacking new stuff. Do you care that the living room is messy when people come over or is it, even if people don't come over, it bothers you. The latter. Okay. So even if people don't come over, it bothers you. How much time do you spend in your living room? Mm, not that much time. Okay. So how, how much of your day do you spend like thinking about like, oh, the living room is messy. And that's like really taking me off. More than I would like to, for sure. Is it more time than you spend in the actual living room? Um. No. No. Okay. So when you're in the living room, are there areas that you can create where it's like, okay, this area can stay a little messy and I'll let the kids have this corner. Yeah. And then there's going to be a boundary where it's like, okay, this part always has to stay clean. We always have to clean up. Right. Is mm -hmm. it that you're spending too much time at home? And so every time you walk into the living room, you're like, this freaking living room is driving me bananas. Is that an indicator that maybe I need more time in outdoor spaces that I'm getting a little stir crazy in here? Yeah. So maybe your need oh. is nature. Maybe your need is order. Maybe your need is, you know, for your kids to play with new toys so that they have you know, more things than just whatever's in their living room. Do the kids need a room where their toys are that's not the living room? So you can start getting into, okay, those are your needs. My wow. needs are cleanliness. My needs are discipline. My needs are time in nature. Is it that I get upset because my spouse doesn't help me keep it clean? So is this a spouse thing? Right. So it, it, it starts getting into like the dynamics. Is it that I ask my kids to clean up and they don't listen to me and I feel like they're defying my authority? Is it a kid thing? So you can start unpacking and the need is not always as automatic as like, I like clean. So if it's not clean, I'm going to get upset. It usually yeah, has a little bit of roots. Yeah. So you're saying this is what a, where a counselor can help. Uh, totally. Totally. Wow. Because it's very hard to be yourself. And to kind of like analyze or improve or work on yourself that, I mean, yeah, yeah, nowhere, exactly. nowhere do you see that that really happened. Even when we look at the stories of the Bhagavatam, people level up in the presence of a mirror. Right. Right. People level up in the presence of a mirror. It's a, a more advanced devotee, a qualified partner, a life, whatever it is. So it doesn't exist in a vacuum. I'm making my job really hard if I want to improve myself with nobody else's help. Mm. Right. So the idea is I can get help and I can get qualified help. Right. If I had a toothache, there's like a certain level toothache where I probably need to see a dentist. 
And I would feel no qualms about seeing a dentist, even though a dentist is a materialist and they work at the dental office and they're just doing it for money. And how do I know? Is the dentist a practitioner of Krishna consciousness? And what is their sadhana? It's like, okay, well, if you have a toothache and you want to get that toothache handled, go see a dentist, make sure they're licensed. And then that's probably all you need. So same thing is if your subtle body, that's with your physical body, right? A very like kind of blunt example with your subtle body, which is your mind. If you have a toothache, yeah. then go see a dentist. <laughs> Just go right. see somebody that's qualified, that's going to help you out. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel. And there's plenty of things that you can handle on your own or with the support of people around you. There's also plenty of work that you can like really shortcut and get really easy, practical, um, comprehensive help with really fast with a counselor. People make massive progress so quickly in counseling. And it's because they're just, they don't have to carry that weight alone. Interesting. This whole time I was just thinking when I, when I go through, like, I'm going to be a little personal here. Uh, I, I'm starting a new job tomorrow, mm-hmm. and um, whenever I had started new jobs in the past, I get so nervous and so like, like anxious and like incredibly like I'm never this anxious or, and I, and I'm thinking now I need to like read more and I need to chant more. I need to like, you know, level up hard on spiritual life. To help me to help support this kind of like nervous, uh, kind of like even panic attack almost that I'm having. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But is that the right way to do it? Because you're saying the mind is like a you know it's like going to the dentist, like the you know for your gross body and your subtle body, the mind. When do you? So my question is, when do you know when it's like something you can f- not fix, but something you can help with Krishna consciousness? or when it's or when you should actually go to a counselor yeah the krishna conscious element for me should never not be there that always has to be there whether you go to a counselor or not because that's it's accessing a whole different part of you whether you're nervous or you have a panic attack or you don't have a panic attack when you're chanting japa you're nourishing your soul that's got nothing to do with your job actually you make it about your job because you become krishna conscious and so you kind of alchemize your job by putting it in contact with the touchstone of your Krishna consciousness. But your job is not inherently Krishna consciousness and your panic attack is not inherently, and your mind is actually not inherently Krishna conscious either. Right. So for me, it's not exclusive. And that's, for me, it's a false dichotomy, basically. It's like a logical fallacy of like, well, it wasn't enough with my job, but therefore I need to go to counseling. Or I'm struggling like this because my Krishna consciousness is insufficient. And what I'm saying is it has to actually come to a place where they're not mutually exclusive. It could be harmonious, right? Mm. At what point do I not chant my rounds and then I just, I go to the dentist instead of chanting my rounds. I'm like, what happened with your rounds? Why did that have to get sacrificed? Because you went to the dentist, chant your rounds on the way to the dentist, chant your rounds when you come back, do the thing, right? right? right. Because what you're saying when you chant your rounds should be, Krishna, I want to connect with you. Krishna, where are you? Krishna, engage me in your service. Give me Radharani's mercy. Let me, you know, fulfill Lord Chaitanya's mission. If you're chanting your rounds and you're like this panic attack, it has to go away with these rounds, then you're not actually chanting for the reason you're we're supposed to be chanting. I'm not supposed to be chanting so I don't get panic attacks. I'm supposed to be chanting so I can be engaged in transcendental loving service to Radha and Krishna. So I need to be careful that I'm not getting 
a little wishy-washy with the offenses towards the holy name, thinking that my rounds are actually supposed to serve me and help me with my anxiety and help me with my depression and help save my marriage. That's not what my rounds are for, actually. That's not what my Bhagavatam reading is for, actually, either. I'm supposed to be doing this so that I can understand eternally I'm the servant of Radha and Krishna. And anything that I can employ in that service, right, I'll be able to chant more focused, clean consciousness rounds if I learn how to just kind of tamp down this anxiety and prevent it from becoming an anxiety attack. So let me go ahead and ask a counselor to help me out with that. And not only will my job benefit from it, my rounds will benefit from it. Come on. Like right. that would be awesome. Right? Yeah. Great point. Yeah. Someone's asking, what does level up mean? Level up means just increase. Improving. Just yeah. Improving, evolving. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Awesome. Uh, Okay, a few more questions here. Uh, as an organization, we are seeing increased number of marriages falling apart. It bothers me that in spite of having access to so much knowledge, we are still not able to keep marriages intact. What is your view on what is ailing our marriages and how can we fix it? You did touch on this. I, I asked something similar to this, but maybe you can elaborate. Yeah, I think that we're, you know, we're really hard on ourselves when we talk about our movement and the marriages in our movement. But the reality is that in society at large, marriages are failing and falling apart right. all over the place. So right. we want to be careful not to feel like we're somehow exceptional and that marriages everywhere else are like thriving and there's something, you know, inherently wrong with us. Um, you know, I think that we're only able to look one generation back. So the scope of our generalizations, as far as our movement, it's very, very small. Right. Right. Our sample size, which is what you would call it like in a statistical study, is very tiny. And so it'd be interesting, and I don't know that this research is out there, but I would be fascinated to know um, what is the divorce rate of first generation couples versus second generation couples? Because I know a lot, I mean, look at yourself, you know, you've been in a relationship for eight, you know, married for eight years. I've been married for 10. There are some people that I know that are going on 20 years that are going on, that are second generation marriages. So wow. I would be interested to know, you know, how are things shifting if they're shifting? So that's my optimist side is like, things are getting better because we're working on it. And I think right. our generation and future generations have an eye for the importance of relationships. And I think that a lot of the ill effects of broken marriages and disrupted relationships from earlier generations took such a toll on us that we're like, no, I actually really want to try for this to be healthy and for this to thrive. I know, you know, personally, I feel that way. So there's that, um, you know, having the knowledge that's, it's like the difference between Jnana and Vigyana, right? Jnana is like, there's the knowledge. We have it. And it's like, yeah, okay. So what's Vigyana? Vigyana means that knowledge applied regularly, that knowledge yeah. realized, right? So I can know, you know, I have all, you know, this access to, you know, the importance of humility and the importance of maintaining a humble mindset, knowing that it's going to benefit my chanting. But do I have the vigyana of humility, right? Am I actually acting humble? Do I behave humble? Does humility actually just like radiate from me? No. Yeah. And so that's, that's my, that's my responsibility. It's not just to have the knowledge, but to kind of apply it practically. And I think that that's the, that's the challenge for all of us in any uh, aspect of our Krishna consciousness, marriage is included. Also, um, marriage is hard by nature, mm. right? The Grihasta Ashram, <laughs> it's, it's just hard. It's just hard for anybody, not just for spiritual practitioners. 
it's just hard. It's hard to live with somebody else. It's hard to share time with somebody else. It's hard to raise kids with somebody else. It's difficult. We can't be so idealistic as to think that anything in this material world is going to be so easy that there's not going to be suffering involved. There's suffering involved in every ashram. There's suffering involved in, in every varna, right? And so the suffering of the Grihasta ashram is that yeah, marriage is like super hard sometimes. So it's not about, is it going to be hard and are we going to struggle? That should be a given. It is going to be hard and there's going to be struggle. It's do I feel equipped to deal with the challenges, right? Do Definitely. I know what I'm doing? Do I have a manual for this? Do I have good association for this, right? Am I anchored in my sadhana so that my spiritual life doesn't fall by the wayside as I'm trying to figure this out? So yeah, those are just kind of some of the thoughts that came to mind. I like the the glass half full view on that, that it, things are getting better. I didn't think of that. You know, this what is the second generation statistics for second generation, third generation marriages? Yeah. A really I'd good be point. so curious. Yeah, for sure. Really good point. Uh, okay. Um, how do you help a dear friend which is in deep depression and is distancing uh, from devotees, including myself? Yeah, that can be very painful. You know, the most that you can do is is be genuine and be available, you know, and, and recommend help if there's help that, that you know of, you know. That's the most that you can do. Depression is is really hardcore. It's a very difficult condition of the mind and it affects all aspects of life. And it's an ongoing struggle. It's not something that like you're depressed and then you did such and such and well, I'm not depressed anymore. You know, it can be it can be a lifelong struggle to be honest. It's just one of those, it's a condition of the mind. And so, you know, it can be very taxing to the friends and loved ones around somebody who is depressed. But the best thing that you could probably do is take really good care of yourself so that you're able to give whatever you give, company, help, uh, lending an ear, et cetera, genuinely and without depleting yourself, you know, and, and, and maintaining some modicum of, you know, really seeing them in the light of being worthy. I think sometimes when we see people struggling with mental health, it kind of tips into this place of like pity or um, kind of seeing them in this like kind of low, lowered or depreciated self-worth. And I think right. that people can feel that, you know, and so it kind of like um, subtracts from their humanity in some way. So I feel like keeping people in the light of you are worthy and you are lovable and you have every chance of working through this and moving through this and I'm here for you. And these are the ways that I'm able to be there for you, practically speaking and without depleting myself of my own energy reserves. And then beyond that, it's gonna be important for me to take care of myself and exercise some you know, knowledge and detachment, right? Which is, do I know enough about depression to know what's really going on? Maybe I wanna get a little informed, just you know, looking on the internet and, and finding some good sources about, okay, this is what depression is. And then also yeah. detachment in the sense of, I'm not gonna be able to rescue this person. It's gonna take work on their behalf and, and it can be very, um, painful to see somebody struggling with that. So I, I empathize with that a lot. When you say uh, one of the uh, things you said was taking care of yourself, so you're not depleting yourself. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So sometimes when, when we see somebody is struggling out of a deep care and concern for the other person, we might tend to extend ourselves. And that's okay sometimes. But if we yeah. keep ourselves in that state of extension and we're starting to neglect our own well-being, 
our sleep, our nourishment, our exercise, our time spent with loved ones, our sadhana, our reading, our service, our, then what ends up happening is I start resenting the person that I'm helping because it's taking right. from me my vital energy, right? right. It's because right. of you that I can't finish my rounds. It's because of you that I can't go to the temple and I have no energy and I have sleepless nights and et cetera, et cetera. And also it starts to disempower the other person because it's basically giving the other person the message of you're not going to be able to figure this out. I have to help you. I'm here to rescue you because I don't actually believe that you can get through this. So it's actually highly disempowering. Um, when you go beyond your own boundaries and rescue or attempt to rescue somebody else because you're giving them that message of, I don't think you're capable actually of figuring this out. So it's it's much more healthy and um, balanced to say, no, I do think that you're capable of figuring this out. And these are the ways in which I can help you and support you and also continue to nourish myself. And as a kind of add on to that, there is no uh, substitution for a good example. If I see somebody is struggling with taking care of themselves and in order to help them, I don't take care of myself, what kind of example am I giving, right? I can give a good example of like, no, I take care of myself. I spend time in nature. I serve other people. I'm, you know, I attend community functions. I, and this is something that keeps me healthy and nourished. Why don't you join me here, right? So keeping that invitation, that extension, that welcoming energy there, um, yeah. That can actually be much more balanced rather than me jumping into their world and then kind of, you know, potentially drowning in that. Yeah, I, I, f I feel like um, a theme when in our conversation is a lot about being that person yourself, being that example. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Okay. Um, you're cool, Mataji. Thank you for joining us. This is a great conversation. Thank you. Uh, Grihasta Vision Team now refers to premarital marital counseling as premarital education. Mm. That may be f that may be phrasing that more couples are open to. That's great. Yeah, I like that. Awesome. Uh, okay, uh, just a lot of appreciation. Um, I think we're at the, uh, we're out of time here. We've been two hours. It just went really quick because it's a really fascinating yeah. <laughs> conversation. We can just keep going on and on. Well, Dunya, can you can you give any um, concluding words for all our listeners? Um, you know, I'll just kind of say what I what I feel like I usually say in these conversations and what I think I've said before in this conversation, which is we want to do our spiritual preceptors proud by honoring one another. You know, Krishna appreciates service to his devotees even more than he appreciates service to himself. And so with that lens, um, we can see our relationships as opportunities to please Krishna, not in some abstract theoretical way, but in a practical day in and day out kind of way. And um, yeah, by taking personal responsibility and upgrading how I show up in relationships and improving my own shortcomings and living by my actual spiritual values in my relationships, that's actually going to be serving the Vaishnavas. And if I see it in that lens, like then I have opportunities for service left and right. When I'm chanting the Maha Mantra, being asked to be engaged in service, I realize I'm actually swimming in a pool of service because I'm interacting with devotees all the time. So seeing my, my surroundings as opportunities to serve Krishna by serving his loved ones, what a, it's like an incredible wealth, actually. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Awesome. Thank you so much. So if, if someone wants to get in contact with Danya, she's on Instagram as uh, Danya Music, at Danya Music. She's also a musician. We didn't touch on any of that. I mean, that's probably for another uh, <laughs> That's my own ego. <laughs> 
amazing musician, creates beautiful music along with her husband and other devotees. And uh, you can get her on Facebook as well, um, Dania Rico. And what else do I have to say? Uh, I'm, I have a special episode coming out tomorrow or the day after. I haven't decided yet. It's with Pralatananda Swami. Uh, I know a lot of devotees have messaged me asking him to comment on uh, the current world health situation. He was the uh, ISKCON World Health Minister for about 27 years. So uh, I did an interview with him. I pre-recorded it and uh, I'll be releasing it soon. But Danya, thank you again so much for, for joining me on, on this uh, amazing conversation about relationships. I know I have a lot of work to do. I mean, when you spoke, I was just like, oh my God, I got so much <laughs> to think about and so much to work on myself. I found a big theme was about self-awareness. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's like something that I'm not used to at all. And I think Maybe it's like a man thing. I don't know what it is, but I, I need to be more self-aware and about knowing what my needs are and so I can better help my people I'm in a relationship with, you know? So I think that has that's really invaluable information. Thank you. Uh, stay on, Danya. I'm going to turn off the live. Uh, you can watch us on YouTube and Facebook. Please subscribe and share uh, this podcast. Thank you, everyone. Hare Krishna. Thank you. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. Krishna, Krishna.